May the words I say and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So that's our last reading from Mark for the next two years. Next year we're into Luke, which is exciting. I like Luke. I like his social justice kind of angle. I like his stories. But I like Mark as well. We farewell that snappy, to the point, no mucking around style, which some might suggest I could learn from. And we finish with this wonderful reading, uh, which seems a bit gloomy to most of us, doesn't it? Um, Mark was written, most commentators would suggest, around the year 70 CE, uh, which is the year the Romans put down the Jewish revolt, razed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, eventually building a new Roman city on the ruins, which wasn't called Jerusalem, in an attempt to expunge that city and those people from history. And even for the Gentile Christians for whom Mark was writing to, We can tell he's writing to Gentile Christians because he keeps having to explain things that any Jewish Christian would have just known. So it's Gentile Christians he's writing to. This was a cataclysmic event. The temple had been, was, the symbol of God's presence amongst God's people. It was a symbol of God's power and authority. And even for the little sect that existed within Judaism, which followed Jesus the Messiah, it was an important symbol that God was in control, that God was winning. That early church that first met in Jerusalem, under the the leadership of James the Just, the brother of our Lord, they met in the temple. That was where they met every day, it was the centre of their life. And depending on exactly when Mark wrote his gospel, it was either about to be destroyed or was in the process of being destroyed or had been destroyed. That potent symbol that everything was right in the world because God was in control was gone. And the loss seemed insurmountable. And that, coupled with the rise of persecution against Christians, which the second part of the reading was about. I actually read more than this in the lectionary, but several commentators said, yeah, you should keep going to at least verse 13. So I did. That piece tells us about the kind of situation that the Christians were in. And this situation with the temple gone and the rise in persecution meant that there was a whole lot of new questions being raised in the Christian community. Questions like, did they get it wrong? Is God present? Have they given their allegiance to the wrong God? I mean, it's all going pear-shaped. Was the Jesus story really good news? We can tell Mark's answering that question because that's how he begins and ends his gospel and keeps repeating it all the way through, the good news of Jesus Christ. And for some... Was this the beginning of the awaited end, the long-awaited end, although not long in their case? And it's an important reading because, well, Mark's time is like our time, really, isn't it? We live in deeply troubled and uncertain times. The church is no longer at the centre or 
even important. We're dismissed at best by many as irrelevant and by far too many others as both homophobic and full of abusers. There was some research done, uh, put out a few weeks ago, that said nearly 50% of New Zealanders have want nothing to do with Christianity because of our attitudes to gay people, the LGBTI community. They just find it incomprehensible. And we have no idea how to respond. And so some of the questions we're asking are very similar to those asked by Mark's computer uh, community. Where did we get it wrong? How is God present? How is the Jesus story really good news in these times? And for some, is this the long-awaited end? This is not an easy passage, but it is a passage for us today. So the story begins with a disciple admiring the large stones and the magnificence of the temple. And this is what's left of some of that temple, the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, uh, which was the kind of foundations of the Temple Mount. Despite everything that Jesus had said and done, this is where the warning bell should start ringing. I remember when Bonnie and I went on a tour of Durham Cathedral over 25 years ago. We were there with a group of young people and people working in youth ministry uh, on a tour, four-week uh, pilgrimage, not a tour, uh, led by the Bishop of Auckland and um, one of my predecessors is the Anglican Youth Network facilitator, Tikanga Parker. And when we went to Durham Cathedral, which is magnificent, the Dean showed us around because we had a bishop with us. And he began his tour by saying, I wish I could tell you that this wonderful place was built for the glory of God. But it wasn't. It was built on top of an Anglo-Saxon church as a clear statement that the Normans were here to stay. It was, first and foremost, a statement of Norman power and authority. And the same is true of that temple. I mean, how do we remember it? Herod's temple. There'd been a temple there since the time of the return from the exile, but Herod rebuilt it. He made it much larger and much more magnificent. And he did it in part to win over the Jews, but also in part as a symbol of his power and generosity. And 2,000 years later, how do we know it? How do we know it? Herod's temple. He won. But that, that was the problem. Because, well, we as people of faith are too often like that disciple. We are blinded by the images of power and magnificence. If we read Mark all the way through from beginning to end in one hit, just before this story, when Jesus came out of the temple, we would have heard Jesus sitting, observing the widow, giving all that she had, while the rich and the wealthy gave out of their abundance. And there are some commentators that say this is Jesus not only commenting on the widow, but also pointing out to his disciples how that temple operated on the impoverishment of the poorest in society, who gave all they had to keep it going. 
The temple was built on abject poverty. And the leaders had made peace with Rome and with Herod and his sons and his successors. And they had profited out of the presence of Rome and Herod. They had bought up land cheaply when they could, the people who owned it could no longer pay the exorbitant taxes. And they had become incredibly wealthy. And so the temple and its leadership had become a symbol of oppression. And amongst all the sects who looked forward to the day of the coming of the Lord, they knew that one of the first things that would happen was that the temple would be cleansed and the new high priesthood would be put in place. And when the rebellion started, the first to die, the very first, were the high priests and his family and all the other chief priests. Then, once they'd got rid of them, they dealt to the Romans. The temple had become a hated symbol of oppression, of collusion, and of impoverishment. And many read this story, like the story of Ruth we've been reading for the last few weeks, as a story of a voice of protest. A voice of protest against the powers that call for racial purity and the powers that impoverish so many people for their own, for their own gain and wealth. And so in this reading, we hear Jesus promising that those structures, magnificent as they are, will fall. That the ways of collusion with the powerful and the wealthy at the expense of the poor and the outcast is not the way of God and it will come to an end. He is reframing the fall of the temple. And it's not just the temple, is it? Throughout the history of Christianity, well, Christianity is littered with similar stories right back to the Emperor Constantine of Christians being distracted, amazed by the powerful and the magnificent. While Bonnie and I were recently in America, we went to the Museum of the African the Museum of African American History in Washington, DC. And I was shocked at the particularly vile form of slavery invented by the British. I mean, we talk about the American slavery, but we forget who invented it. Unlike the Catholic European powers, who also were involved in that slave trade, where 12 million people, they think, were moved out of Africa and into the Americas. The Catholic European powers followed the Catholic teaching that black Africans had souls, and so it was possible for a black African slave in a French or Spanish colony to work outside of their slave hours and to earn money and to buy their freedom. And once they bought their freedom, they were free to take part in the economic and the social and the cultural life of those colonies. And if you go to Louisiana, the first 85 years is a story where that happened because it was French and Spanish and French. They kind of swapped it around for a while. But around about the time that Saint, uh, that New Orleans, New Orleans was uh, being uh, formed by, uh, created by the French, Virginia was passing. British Virginia was passing a law that defined Black Africans as slaves for life, with no chance of ever being free. They were defined as less than human. And they sowed the roots of what is still being played out in the USA today. 
And as I read that and as I thought about that, I wondered about how that was played out around the British Empire over the next two to three hundred years. How did that attitude, that if you were not white, in fact not British, you were less than, and if you were of colour, you were less than human. How did that play out around the British Empire? In Australia, in the rest of the Americas, Canada, how it played out in Africa and here in New Zealand. Recently I read an article in which an historian said that the British Empire and its wealth wasn't built on the wonder and the technology of the British, but it was built on the back of slavery. And what is distressing in all of that is to know that the Church of England, of which we grow out of, too often played a central role in defending and implementing that attitude. They fought Philip Wilberforce's attempts to outlaw slavery, tooth and nail to the very end. Slavery was at the heart of the British economy. It was at the heart of how the Church of England made its money. They could not afford slavery to go. We, the Church of England, were dazzled by the large stones of power and authority. And last week we remembered the end of World War I when over 10% of this country was called on to go to Europe to defend the interests of the British Empire. How often did churches pray assuming that God was on our side? That God was using the British Empire to spread God's civilization, and that it was important that we went so that we could keep Britain great. And that war led to the rise of Hitler in Germany. And Hitler was supported by the official German Lutheran Church. Why? Because they saw him as God's instrument in making Germany great again, so that Germany could reclaim its rightful position in the world. Wasn't the best guy, but God was using him. Again, the church blinded by the large stones of magnificence and power. And in the USA right now, we have a sizable group of evangelical Christians who are supporting a serial adulterer and misogynist who is a deeply flawed and serial liar and is absolutely unrepentant. And they support him because he is God's agent who is making America great again so that they can reclaim their place in the world as the greatest moral force for good the world has ever seen. Not my words, to be clear. All of those examples of when we have failed to listen to Jesus' warnings in this reading and have been blinded by those large stones. We keep ignoring the warning and Jesus' warning about what happens to those structures of magnificence and power keeps coming true. And the same is true for us, I think, in some ways as a church. A couple of weeks ago at clergy school, we explored how the maps we used for leading our churches no longer walk, uh, no longer work. We know that. 
the kind of base story was the story of Lewis and Clark who led the expedition to find the route, the trade route from the east coast to the west coast of America. And it's a great story and it's a story about how they expected to be able to uh, leave St. Louis and go up the Missouri in their boats. So they were kind of water people uh, and they were going to get to the headwaters of the Missouri and they were going to go across the top of that peak and they were going to find the headwaters of the river that would then take them down to the Pacific. The only trouble was when they got to the peak and they went and looked out, what did they see? The Rockies, endless mountains, covered in snow, not a headwater to be seen. They had believed in some large stones. They'd made some large assumptions about what the world would be like. And when they got there, it no longer was like that. And that's like us. We have paddled our boat up to the headwaters. And now we find ourselves in a strange, strange world of snow-covered peaks. And our maps, like their maps, and our assumptions, like their assumptions, no longer work had this really interesting conversation. We'd been there for four days. We'd heard all about the stuff. And we were talking about somebody going to uh, Riverley and Hastings. And one of the older guys said, oh, he'll be fine. He'll do some good. He'll lead some good services and preach good sermons. And people will come back and it will grow. And it was like, no. The whole point of this is that doesn't work anymore. It doesn't matter how good you are the best you can do often is just hold the days of growing apart from the occasional mega church where people kind of switch around, they're gone. If Lewis and Clark had kind of went, well, we're water people, we can't go any further, that expedition would have stopped right there and then. But they left their boats and they went off to find guides and horses and somewhere to spend the winter so they could then reinvent their kind of exhibition. It became a land-based expedition from that point on. And that's the world that we live in. And I wonder how the large stones of our supposed glorious past blind us to our new world. We still too often remember the full days of Sunday schools when lots of young people were in youth groups and churches were full. I was in fielding told about the grand days when buses would go around and pick up people and bring them into Evensong. When we had people, lots of people, who had time to volunteer. And we as a church were, were important. We played a significant role in the life of our society. And it's hard to let go of that past even though it was never that good. The best estimates were that we were never more than 20% of the population church going. So we were, have always been a relatively unchurched society. It's just we assumed everyone was Christian. So if you weren't a church goer, you were C of E. I remember that in Scouts. Do you go to church? No, I'm your C of E. And it's hard to let go of that past. And we came up against that last week at AAW. This amazing organisation that grew out of Mother's Union and Young Wives, that in a time when men ruled the world, gave women a significant voice and role in the life of the church, 
and was a significant force in both our churches and our wider society. But the trouble is, we keep clutching on to those large stones of the past and we don't ask what is needed now. What are the maps? The maps don't work anymore. What do we need to do now? That's the question. So some questions to finish with. How are we like that disciple? Blinded by the magnificent and the large. Both in our society and in our past as a church. How are we like Andrew and Peter and James and John? Uncertain and unsure. Not sure what is going on. And as we leave this year and enter into a new year and Advent, what is Jesus saying to us in this reading from Mark? What have we been invited to let go of? And what is God inviting us to instead?